Thank you for listening in to the Sunset Church of Christ podcast. You're listening to a lesson that was delivered on December the 1st, 2019. And that lesson was entitled, Making Wise Choices with the Person You're Going to Marry. We now go to that sermon. So for the last few weeks, we've been talking about the idea of how it is we make the most important choices in our life. We've observed the idea that the most important choices in life oftentimes are made when we're relatively young. In fact, we've kind of said that we want to talk to our young people here, uh, people who are just now becoming teenagers. Hey, there's some people who are just becoming teenagers right now. People moving up into their 20s and you're making choices in your life about who you're going to be that are going to decide things in this life, but also going to decide things in the next. Most important choice you can make, we talked about a few weeks ago, is to become a disciple of Jesus Christ. We talked about other important decisions you make, like, like your education and your vocation, what you're going to do for a living. But this morning I want to spend a couple of minutes of your time talking about your second most important choice in life. I guess my question is, do you know what that choice is? What is the second most important choice you make in life? The answer is marriage. Yeah. The answer is who it is that you're going to share your life with. This choice is right after discipleship in the value and the importance that it's going to have in impacting your life. You need to understand some things about marriage this morning, and I would like to just uh, share a few thoughts with you from the Word of God. First and foremost, that it's something that God wants. When God looked upon the creation of Adam in Genesis chapter 2, and, and it's interesting, at the end of Genesis chapter 1, it speaks about everything being good, and yet here God observed Adam's condition, and He says, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. I like that language there. Some translations, uh, your older translations, use the word help meet. That's somebody who can provide assistance to them. And thus the Word of God tells us that here God created the institution of marriage. Even before man and woman had fallen into sin, even before Jesus created the church, marriage was the institution created by God for the benefit of mankind. There's a lot of important things to say about marriage, and we really simply don't have the time to cover all those things this morning. Uh, what we're going to be focusing on is the importance of how we wisely make choices about marriage. But let me simply say that if I wanted to sum it up, I might go back to Genesis and say that here in the beginning, God tells us what marriage was all about. It was about one man, one woman, and one life. Adam said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife and they shall become one flesh. Here is God's creation of marriage as it was observed in the beginning. In Matthew chapter 19, when Jesus was giving us his rules on marriage that would be part of his law, Jesus would return to that passage, answering the Pharisees who were asking him there in verse 9, is it, verse 3, is it lawful to divorce for any reason? And Jesus said, have you not read that from the beginning, uh, that word the beginning is the word Genesis, from Genesis, 
God made them male and female and said, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. There again saying, this was the law of Christ. So then there are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, there's the creation of marriage, there's the author of marriage, there's the force of marriage, God himself. What God has joined together, let not man separate. Now they go on to ask him, well, why did Moses then give us a certificate of divorce? If, in other words, that was God's purpose. And Jesus would answer, it was because of their sin. Moses, because of the hardness of your hearts, permitted you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. I say to you, and this becomes the second portion of Jesus' law on marriage, his law on divorce, I say to you, Whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, and marries another, commits adultery. Whoever marries her who is divorced commits adultery. Some of our older translations render that word as fornication. Except for fornication. To divorce and marry another, Jesus said, was adultery. First Corinthians 7, Paul would summarize this very succinctly, maybe giving us just the best way to put it. Here's Paul's statement. He says, this is the commandment of the Lord there in 1 Corinthians 7 and verse 10. Here's the Lord's commandment. A wife is not to depart from her husband. If she does depart, let her remain unmarried or be reconciled to her husband. A husband is not to divorce his wife. And there we have Jesus' teaching. One man, one woman, one life. We've all heard that statement at marriage ceremonies, till death do you part. We understand that's not made by man. That is God's purpose. That is why we're saying that apart from discipleship, this is the big choice we make. No choice you make is going to have a greater importance in this life than who you choose to be your helper in this life. And this requires a great deal of wisdom in order to wisely make this lifelong choice. I want you to understand two things, very important ideas this morning. First and foremost is this. God wants you, if you are uh, those especially who are younger, not yet married, God wants you to prepare yourself for marriage. Listen to me very carefully. God wants you to prepare yourself for marriage. He wants you to pursue marriage. He wants you to find the person that fits the things that he says. But the second thing I need you to know, is it is better not to be married than to be married to the wrong person. And that gives you a sense of how important this is. You've got to pursue marriage, but you've got to make sure you are marrying the right person. And obviously the question becomes, then who is the right person? How do we make this choice wisely? And while there, as I said, is a lot to be said about this important subject, perhaps we can turn to the Word of God and find just a few tidbits, a few things that might tell us how it is we make this choice wisely. I need you to break your Bibles out this morning. And let's go back to the Old Testament. Let's go back to the book of Ruth. To one of the greatest love stories in the Bible. It truly is a fantastic love story. In some ways, I think the book of Ruth is probably uh, the book in the Bible that is the easiest book to read. It's only four chapters. Uh, it's easy to read because it flows in such a way that we're all drawn in. It, it has its ups and downs. It has a happy ending. It's, it's just a fantastic story to read. 
You might remember in Ruth chapter 1 that we're introduced to a woman named Naomi, a woman who is an Israelite. Her husband takes her out of Israel. They go over to the land of Moab. Her sons there marry Moabites. Now that's a bad thing if you know what the law of the Jews was not to intermarry. That wasn't a wise decision. Uh, Unfortunately, uh, over time what happens, her husband dies, her sons die, and now she is alone and and she only has these two daughter-in-laws, both of whom don't share her Uh, Don't share her people, the Israelites. We're told in Ruth chapter 1 that Naomi seeks to return to her homeland, to Israel. And we're told how it is her daughter-in-law, Ruth, accompanies her all the way to become a sojourner, a foreigner, an immigrant to a land that in some way she does not belong. Ruth chapter 2 continues that story. And at verse 4 we find how it is that a relative of Naomi named Boaz had uh, was a farmer in the area of Bethlehem. Bethlehem means house of bread, so you might get a sense of, of the things that they grew around that area. And Boaz came from Bethlehem and said to the reapers of his field, said to the reapers, the Lord be with you. And they answered, the Lord bless you. Boaz said to his servants who was in charge of his reapers, whose young woman is this? He sees Ruth out there. And he asked, who is this woman? And the servant who was in charge of the reapers answered and said, it's the young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. She said, please let me glean and gather after the reapers among the sheaves. So she came, has continued from morning until now, though she rested a little in the house. And she tells you a lot, uh, believe it or not. One sentence and you learned a lot. As Boaz is sitting there, he has just learned that here is a woman who's hardworking, who's been there all day. Uh, gleaning means the idea of taking what was left behind. And she does so not for herself, but as a Moabite, she's actually doing it for her mother, who was an Israelite. She's taking care of somebody that, by the way, Boaz, as a relative, might have had himself some obligation to take care of. This actually tells Boaz a lot about this young woman. So Boaz makes a decision right there. Boaz says to Ruth, You will listen, my daughter, will you not? Do not go glean in another field, nor from uh, here, but stay close to my young women. Let your eyes be on the field which they reap, and go after them. Have I not commanded the young men not to touch you? And when you're thirsty, go to the vessels and drink from what the young men have drawn. So she fell on her face, bowed down to the ground, and said to him, Why have I found favor in your eyes, since that you should not notice me, since I am a foreigner? Boaz answered and said to her, It's been fully reported to me all that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband, how you have left your father and your mother in the land of your birth, and have come to a people whom you did not know before. Stop there. What's interesting here is that Boaz is making a choice, a choice that in the next few chapters we see brought to its fulfillment. Boaz is, is making a choice to cast his approval on Ruth. It's interesting because it's clear what he's saying is that he's making this choice based on the character of the things that she has done. That here is a woman who, having left her homeland to take care of her mother-in-law, her destitute, her widowed mother-in-law, uh, to be honorable was more important to her than to be at ease. 
And that she, in fact, is going to go to a land that is not her own and beg of those that are there uh, because of her uh, understood obligation to take care of this other person. And Boaz thinks that is a big deal. It is a big deal, by the way. And Boaz chooses her based on her character. Now, he could have looked at other things. He could have said, well, she's a, she's a Moabite. She's not uh, from around here. She's a woman that's been married before. All these different things. But he looks at her and he says, no, this is, this is a woman to be praised. This is a lo- woman who, well, he goes on to say, the Lord will repay your work. A full reward will be given to you by the God of Israel because you've come to Him for refuge. He says, you're, you're quite the lady. Chapter 3, the story continues on as Naomi, her mother-in-law, says to her, My daughter, shall I not seek security for you? Uh, I need you to find a place here that it may be well with you. Now Boaz, whose young women you were with, is he not our relative? In fact, he's winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Therefore, wash yourself, anoint yourself, put on the best garment, go down to the threshing floor. Do not make yourself known to the man until he's finished eating and drinking. Then it shall be when he lies down. You lie, you notice the place where he lies. You shall go in, uncover his feet, lie down, and he'll tell you what you should do. Here's a very unusual way of letting him know that you would accept a marriage proposal if it should come. And she said to her, all that you say to me, I will do. So she went down to the threshing floor, did according to all that her mother-in-law instructed her. After Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was cheerful, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. She came softly, uncovered his feet and lay down. It happened at midnight. The man was startled and turned himself and there was a woman lying at his feet. He said, who are you? And she answered, I'm Ruth, your maidservant. Take your maidservant under your wing." For you are a close relative. And then he said, Blessed are you of the Lord, my daughter, for you have shown more kindness at the end than at the beginning, and that you did not go after young men, whether rich or poor. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you request. For all the people of my town know that you are a virtuous woman. Second half of this story is how Ruth chooses Boaz. And notice what he said. He said, wow, you, uh, you've chosen me. And she says, I did so because of your character and your identity. You're one of my own kinsmen, so to speak. You're one of my own people in a way, even though she really is a Moabite, yet, yet she's saying, you're, you're one of my people. And that makes you more important than... And, and Boaz says, you know, he must be quite a bit older than her because he says, well, you, you could have gone after a younger man or you could have gone after a richer man. But you picked me. And he says, that really speaks more to your virtue than anything, that that's what matters to you. This is, as I said, probably the greatest love story in the Bible. It's my favorite. But what's really interesting about it is it's two people who say, we choose each other based on the best things you can choose people for, for virtue and for character. And it's explicit to tell us that it's not based on appearances or based on the outer things, but it's based on that inner character of the heart. You go on to read the rest of the book and you read in chapter 4 how that marriage takes place and the children they have. Eventually one of their grandchildren or uh, great-grandchildren would become king of Israel, the greatest king there would be. In the New Testament, whenever we go over that lineage of Jesus, uh, Matthew chapter 1 wants you to know, hey, by the way, Ruth, She's one of Jesus' ancestors. That's a big deal. 
point is this fantastic story is the story of two people making wise choices about who they will spend their life with. And what we walk away is that it not only is about who you choose, but how you choose. In fact, I would think you might already appreciate the idea that how you choose that person comes to be some of the most important things you need to understand. So how do you choose? How do you find the person that you're going to spend your life with? Well, let me throw some ideas out at you to think about. First and foremost, let us say that the important way to understand to make a wise choice is to avoid making a foolish one. How not to choose might be the first thing I would want you to understand. And you might go back to Ruth and and to uh, Boaz, those two people of virtue, and understand that first and foremost, they did not choose based on worldly things. Unfortunately, that's most people today. They choose people that look good. They find interest in people who have, uh, who have characteristics about themselves, uh, personality attributes that they find exciting or interesting, things that in fact really don't have much value. In Proverbs 31, there was a king whose mother was trying to give him advice about uh, the kind of people he should know. And she talks in chapter 31 about a woman of virtue. And she tells her son, there are great things about a woman of virtue, but you know what? Charm and beauty aren't two of them. Those are things that just come and go. They're not important. They're not bad. But they're not important. In fact, the second half of this statement is that it is the woman who fears the Lord who is to be praised. But the point is, first and foremost, we live in a world where lots of people want to make the choices they make, especially or particularly about the people they're going to be around, they're going to date, leading to marriage. They want to make those choices by looks, and that's just going to lead you the wrong way. You're going to make the wrong decision if that's how you're thinking. Jesus would tell us as his disciples that whatever decisions we make, he would tell us uh, not to judge by appearance, but judge with righteous judgment. Here is Ruth looking at Boaz. And Boaz, as I said, the older man, maybe there were others that are richer than him, whatever the point was. Here he was, that old bachelor. And she decides, here's a man of virtue, a man who is who has that kinsmanship relationship with me. Here's the man I should choose. He looks at her and she's a Moabite. His children with her would, would have that, you could say, taint of being a Moabite. And yet he says, no, this is, this is a woman of virtue. Don't judge by looks. Don't judge by the worldly things. Judge by the spiritual things. Avoid the wrong choices. The second thing I would say to you is, is that sometimes you just know the person's not right. Don't choose someone you simply know is not right. Someone who's not going to help you. Somebody who's, who's only going to hold you back in life. Uh, we might think of all of our relationships in life. We're warned that uh, to those who don't share, uh, she was looking for a kinsman, those that don't share our connection with Christ, that that's a tough way to choose. We're told repeatedly that there's a danger to being joined to those who, who don't have that same uh, love for God. A lot of us understand that that can be a very difficult thing to make a choice about. We're told, 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 33, evil companionships corrupt good morals. Uh, that idea of marrying somebody who you would say is evil, they're going to damage your life. 
And if you know that, don't say to yourself, well, I can change them. They have, they have evil habits, they have evil behavior, but one day I'll change them. The Bible says, no, they'll change you. Don't be foolish and believe that that won't happen. Don't choose on appearances. Don't choose somebody you know is a bad choice. And don't choose based purely on emotion. This is an important idea that I think is utterly lost. Uh, one that, in fact, I would say of anything, is the idea that the world gets the most wrong. You know, sometimes I get the, the privilege to get to speak at somebody's wedding. I'm very careful what I'm wording here. I'm not marrying them. You just read a moment ago, God joins a man and woman in marriage, not man. But maybe I get the privilege of getting to speak at their wedding. But if somebody asks me that, um, it's not always my favorite thing to do. But if somebody asks me that, the first thing that has to happen is I say, well, you have to go through Brian's class on marriage, trademark thing. Brian's class on marriage. And the first thing you always hear, Brian's class on marriage, is bad news. I sit you down and I say, let me tell you something. Look at each other in a year you won't love each other. Nobody ever likes that. I always get a funny look on somebody's face, and I mean it. You won't feel the same way you feel right now. Because a lot of what's going on right now is those emotions, those feelings that we have. And if you've ever, you know, we use the expression falling in love, there's really something to that, that there's, a, there's an emotion that almost seems out of control about a feeling towards someone. That's why the Bible says, hey, be careful, guard your heart, don't, don't fall like that, be, be wise in how you choose the things you choose, but you follow that path of emotion, I always sit there and I say, hey, the first thing I need you to know is that person across the table from you, in a year, in 18 months, maybe two years at top, you're not going to feel this way anymore. That feeling moves aside. I always start off and say, that's the bad news. The good news is the real relationship can begin at that point if you're prepared to do so. But let me say this, you might feel like you're in love with someone, but then you find also, I don't really like them. Don't choose that person. If that choice is based purely on the emotions of the moment, and you've made no consideration of, is this person a smart person for me to be with? Is this person going to enable me a better life? Or is this person going to be somebody that's going to constantly drag me down? You're making the wrong decision. How many times do we say the different ways of, of warning people? Don't, don't just run with your emotions. Don't just uh, go with you know, that silly saying of the world, the heart wants what the heart wants, because there's a way that can seem right. It may feel right, but you know, it can destroy you. And it's hard to say to people, to say, hey, the person you choose to spend your life with, don't choose them just because it feels great right now. Choose the person that you know that when that feeling is gone, nobody ever believes me. Nobody ever, they always say, no, this will never go away. But when that feeling is gone, that you have enough uh, of a relationship built that then something important can be constructed. Don't make that choice based on emotion. I suppose there's other things I can say, but these, these to my mind, reflect the most important things you need to know. Don't, uh, don't choose people because of worldly things. Don't choose people that you know aren't the good choice. Don't choose people based purely on how it feels at the moment. Choose wisely. 
what does a wise choice look like? Maybe if I just give you the, the big ideas here, as opposed to the details of these things, uh, you might walk away with something useful to share with others. Let me just say it like this. Here's the number one advice I always say to somebody who says, hey, what kind of person should I marry? I say, marry someone who you know loves God more than you. Marry somebody who is more dedicated to God than you. And you'll actually be marrying the person who can do the best things for you. You'll actually be marrying the person who will probably make you the happiest. You'll actually be marrying somebody who who will give you pretty fantastic things. Go back to Ruth and Boaz. What they're looking at is a person that loves the things of God more than anything else. That's what they found desirable about each other. Is that they each had more thoughts towards God. You know, your number one right choice is somebody who loves God more than you. Somebody who, uh, when you're tempted not to do the right thing, they're not. And they're going to enable you in the things that you want to do. I'm going to tell you, number one, that's, that's a good decision. Here's a second thing. It's kind of like it, but it's a little different. Love someone, uh, I'll use a different word to kind of give it a different flavor. Love somebody who's more committed to the, if I use the word institution, I hope you know what I mean. Love someone who's more committed to the institution of marriage than they are to you. And let me tell you why. It goes back to that conversation I had a moment ago that at some point those feelings that initially brought people together go away and what remains is, well, how committed am I? Because at some point, uh, I'll say this, uh, for most couples, if not all couples, at some point, you're not going to like that person at all. Someday you're going to wake up and you're going to say, you know, uh, Mrs. Haynes might say, no, she never would. Do you have to chew your eyes so loud? Do you ever pick up your shoes? These are all true statements. You're right. I can make her life pretty hard. You have to pick somebody who's more dedicated to the, the institution of marriage than you, that they say to themselves, you know what, right now, I don't enjoy being with you, but because of the marriage covenant, I'm going to make this work. You know, lots of people say that. I, I remember years ago, one of the first times somebody invited me to participate in their wedding ceremony, I, I heard uh, a conversation by a family member who the comment was of one of the parents, they said, boy, I hope the kids understand that marriage is for life. And the other parent who, who wasn't a Christian, the other parent said, well, oh, we think that too. And I think they were on their third marriage. The kids didn't last very long, sad to say. Because a lot of times people are committed to each other, but not to marriage. And when you're committed to each other, at some point that commitment gets damaged because you're committed to somebody that's not perfect. You're committed to somebody who's got flaws, who chews their eyes all the time. Who does all these things that after a while you think, boy, could you be any more annoying? At that point, it's when that commitment to marriage kicks in and you have confidence. I'll tell you what, one of the greatest confidences you can have is that you know that, that, the, that your commitment to marriage means that you're not going to ever quit no matter what the circumstance is. That is enormous. The right person is committed not to you, but to marriage. 
And that will bring you great things in life. That will give you security and comfort and trust. Because that idea means they're committed to something that is perfect. Because you're not. And that's pretty great. Number three, you learned this from Naomi, from Ruth, um, from Boaz as well. You learned that the thing is, virtue is the big deal. And virtue was seen by the way that Ruth treated her mother-in-law. I always uh, I've heard this and I always thought it's a good idea. You can know a lot about a man by the way he treats his parents. By the way he treats those with whom he has obligations. Particularly if those obligations are hard. They're not easy obligations to meet. They're obligations that have difficulties involved in them. And yet that dedication, that, uh, that willingness to bring about that service, that tells you a lot. Boaz looks at Ruth and he says, wow, you left your homeland, you left your family to, to take care of this woman that most people would have said, well, uh, look, uh, you know, a husband's dead, I don't really owe this to you anymore, and yet you're going to take care of her? He says, well, that tells me a lot. It does. It tells you a great deal. I would suggest you maybe one of the ways you can know the most about a person is to say, how do you, how do you fulfill the obligations that you have? Because, no, you really can't know everybody. You can't really know what's in the heart oftentimes. You can't really see what, uh, what's really deep down and how people are really feeling. Unfortunately, people can be deceptive. We put on masks. I, I would dare say that I've never met a person, uh, people that got married, that before they got married, they weren't wearing some kind of mask to kind of hide certain things about themselves. I didn't chew ice before I got married. Point is, we, we all kind of put on that very best behavior that then we let go But those obligations that we have and that we carry out, those tell us a great deal about somebody. Let me give you one more to think about. The right kind of person is going to be a person who pursues sanctification over happiness. Sanctification, holiness. Let me tell you what that implies. The idea that they're going to uh, choose the idea of the sanctification of their body, their vessel. That that's more important to them than, than bringing about the, the pleasures of the flesh or the things that they want right now. Uh, that can be the idea of how they handle money, how they handle themselves, all these different things. A person who says, there are in things more important than my happiness, that's a good person to catch. Somebody who understands that character matters more than satisfaction. That is somebody worth your time. That is somebody you need to know. I've told you a lot about how we look to others. Maybe the conversation ought to, uh, to come back to the idea of how do we prepare ourselves. Well, there's a lot more to be said on that. In fact, we're not going to go into that this morning for the sake of time. But I do want to say this. How do I prepare myself? How do I get myself ready for these things, I don't have a good answer for that at first. I don't mean the idea that there are a lot of things that we can do in preparing our character, pursuing sanctification over happiness, or, or the things that we can do, fulfilling our obligations we have now. Those are all things that we can be doing right now that prepare us for that person who is looking for those things to find. But maybe the number one thing I would want to say is this. Apostle Paul talking to the Philippians who says this statement. We use this statement all the time because it applies to so many scenarios in our life. He says, be anxious 
for nothing. I think therein lies some of the greatest dilemmas we face when it comes to marriage. That anxiety of am I, you know, what's going on? What's next? Where is that person I'm supposed to find? What if I miss them? What if, uh, what if this is the person? I think Paul's words fit best when he says, Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. You know, we, we say all the time that God's will is what we pray for, right? I, I hope you all understand that. That the Bible repeatedly tells us that we're supposed to be praying for the will of God. That means we're supposed to be praying for things God wants over the things we want. Now, I, that's a hard idea with prayer. Uh, that's probably the hardest idea of prayer to kind of uh, figure that one out in life, that, that we're supposed to pray more for the things we know God wants than the things we want. God, though, said, I don't want you to be alone. I want you to be with somebody who, who seeks me. And God would want us to understand that I would, I would want you to be alone only if the choice is between that and the wrong person. So I would consider that the idea of praying about these things to those who are young, to those who are uh, looking ahead to their life, that the number one thing you ought to be doing to prepare yourself is to be praying about this constantly. To be preparing yourself not for the person you're going to marry, but for your God. And if you're preparing yourself for your God, then indeed you are preparing yourself for a godly person. And they'll discover you in the same way that we have this fantastic love story of old. And great things will come out of that blessed union. Let's take a second and let's go to our Father in a word of prayer. Would you bow your heads? Would you pray with me? Righteous Heavenly Father, we love you and we thank you for the blessing that is in this day. The good things that you give us in our lives that we are blessed to have. And Father, we're so very grateful that we can look in your word and find so many things about marriage and how important marriage is. Father, our desire this morning is to encourage those, especially our young people, who are looking ahead to their lives, to prepare themselves for marriage. To understand that it is your will that they should do so, but to prepare themselves wisely. To understand it is your will that they should do so wisely, that they should make this choice as you would have them to make this choice, so that they might equip themselves for your service. Father, it's our desire that, that our young people should find godly mates. It is our constant endeavor and hope for them that you will help them to find people that love you more than them, that are more dedicated to that institution of marriage than they are to the person they are marrying, so that, Father, our young people can have these great blessings that you've laid out for us. Father, help those of us who are married to, uh, to do our very best to put on Christ. Or, Father, we are single and we are serving you in that way, that we will be patient and confident in you, that we will trust in you in all things. Help us, Father, uh, when we're weak and when we're uh, caught up in the things of this world, not to let those things infect our minds or damage our thinking, but instead to serve you and love you in every way we can. Father, forgive us of our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. And in the name of Jesus... Our Lord and Savior, we pray. Amen. Second most important decision you'll make in your life is the person you're going to choose as your mate. But we've said it before, we'll say it again. The most important decision you make in your life is to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. 
What does it mean to be a disciple? When Jesus uh, told His apostles to go forth and make disciples of all men, He told them two things. He said, you're going to be baptizing them. You're going to be teaching them. We understand that what was being taught, the Word of God, is where faith comes from. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the Word of God. Uh, another word for faith, to believe. We understand that is the beginning of the, of the process of becoming a disciple, to hear and to believe. But that process is incomplete yet. The Bible also says in the same series of passages that promise us that importance of faith coming by hearing, that we must also, Romans chapter 10 and verse 9 says, confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord. But not only those things, the Word of God also tells us that we have to repent, that is to make that commitment to walk in sin no more. And then the Word of God says, as Jesus described, making disciples by baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit to be baptized into Christ, which is to put on Christ, to put on discipleship of Christ. And then we walk faithfully in our lives as disciples. Every time we're together, we offer the opportunity. Somebody's not a disciple of Jesus Christ. We'd like to talk to you about that. Maybe you have questions about how to become a disciple. Maybe you uh, uh, are prepared to make that commitment right now. Well, we can, we can move you to that process. We can, we can see that these things are accomplished. Or maybe in your discipleship, you're just struggling with your walk. You're just struggling with the things that you uh, have to carry and, and the burdens you bear and you need some help. And guess what? The Word of God says it is. As members of the body of Christ, we bear one another's burdens. We some time on that this morning even, in our class time. To bear one another's burdens and fulfill the law of Christ. So as, as we gather, every time we're together, we say, if you want to be obedient to this gospel, you need to share your burdens with others, whatever it might be. You can, you can do so after services. We can talk to you, but you might even want to do it right now. And if so, we'll do it right now. You can come up here and visit with me right now as we stand and we sing a song of encouragement. Amen.